Hello and welcome to the coffee celebration. My name is Wendy Steinberg and I'm your host today. And you are lucky because today we have Dr. Peter um, Hogan Camp. Can I, did I say that right? Perfectly. All right. And he wears many different hats. He is a practicing physician. He's a TV host for Your Health Matters. Um, he's an author. He's a blogger. I don't know how he does it all, but we're going to jump right in. And welcome to the Coffee Celebration. And uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. So, um, uh, I, as you mentioned, I'm a, a practicing physician. Um, I'd also like to say I'm, I'm married for 30 years and I have four children. Um, and uh, uh, and I like to do uh, a lot of things other than what you mentioned. I'm um, uh, I love to play golf. I love to hike and I love to ski. And those three things are are big time. Um, um, all the things I like to do are big time eaters. Yeah. Uh, I love to read, um, as you might imagine. You know, an author loves to read, uh, and and I do a lot of things that soak up a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so I'm finding myself. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I, I'm turning 60 next year. A lot of people say, geez, you know, you, you have more time as you get older kind of thing. And that's a wonderful thing. And, and it's true. You know, um, four of my um, uh, three of my four kids are graduated from college. Um, I have one that's going to college next year. And so I definitely have, you know, less kind of like fatherly duties kind of thing on a day to day basis. But yeah. it seems to me I've got I just keep on, um, you know, uh, taking on more of these hobbies and other things to do. And I'm still just as pressed for time as I ever have been. <laughs> Absolutely. So I know you're from Vermont, or is that where you're currently living, right? So we, we've lived in Vermont for 30 years. Oh, my gosh. I love Burlington. It is such a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, I can't believe I actually, like, didn't move there because it was so lovely when we went. Um, so when you were growing up, did you always want to be a physician? Um, because, you know, a lot of kids do. You have to kind of work on that in high school. So then was that one of the occupations that you really wanted to have? You know, it's interesting because I come from a very, very big family. Um, and in my mother's side of the family, I have 26 cousins. Mm -hmm. And there are many physicians and lawyers among those. Um, and that said, I did not want to be a physician. Um, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I used to um, uh, write, um, I started writing creatively in the fourth grade. Um, I started a novel when I was in the eighth grade. I got about a hundred pages into it. Um, and I remember showing it to my father and my father told me it needed work. <laughs> Do you still have it? Do you still have it? That's one of the great tragedies oh. of my life because I remember when I got into high school, I threw it in a drawer somewhere. And then when we, when I graduated from college, my father got transferred and we moved out of the house that I'd lived in my whole life. And I'm sure my mom just chucked it out. I would love to see that book. I can still picture it. It was written in a little, um, you know, um, uh, one of those wire bound notebooks. It was dark green. And, and uh, you know, I wrote in pen, pen and uh, pencil and paper. And I would love to see that right now. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, unfortunately, I don't have it. But anyway, I got to high school. I started playing sports and I, I uh, was a three sport athlete in high school. And then, you know, obviously, you know, with trying to keep my grades up, I wasn't able to write again until I turned 40. Okay. And, uh, but I remember when I went to college, um, I was choosing a major and I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be an English major and focus on creative writing. And my father goes, well, he said, you know, why don't you do something else? And then, you know, when, when you turn, when you're later and you have some life experience, you know, then, then you can write. 
Um, <laughs> which at the time I think was, you know, the way things went, you know, recently we see so many great authors who are writing straight out of them, uh, you know, straight out of college kind of thing or, or even earlier. Right. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure that the paradigm that my father was talking about where, you know, you needed to have, um, you need to live life in order to write. I, I don't think that that works anymore. I don't um, think so either. It did work for me. Um, so, you know, so I was, uh, I, I went to college as a physics major, lasted two weeks in that. Then I switched to math. So I lasted about a month in that. And then I settled on chemistry, which I didn't like. Yeah. But um, I had to do something. And, and uh, so I ended up graduating college uh, with a chemistry major. Uh, about halfway through college, I thought to myself, well, I'll add pre-med major on. It's not that much more. And so I applied to the pre-med program and ended up um, ended up going to medical school um, and practicing for 30 years. Um, but um, and, and it's been a wonderful career for me. Yeah. Um, but um, that said, my you know I would have much loved to have been a writer. <laughs> yeah. But um, I didn't start writing again. I, I quit when I was 14, and I didn't start again until I turned 40. Uh, and um, I'll, I'll never forget it. I was sitting around on a Saturday night one time, and my kids were younger at the time, and we got them all off to bed, and uh, I, um, I said, you know, I, I had this kind of story knocking around in my head. I do a lot of hiking, as I mentioned, and when I'm hiking, I think about things, you know, and I, I had this story that was kicking off, and anyway, so I, I, I opened up one of my old college notebooks, and I started writing, and um, I um, it was like 11 o'clock, and I normally go to bed pretty early, and my wife wakes up. I think she was reading upstairs, and she's like, what is he doing downstairs? This guy never goes to bed after 9 o'clock. Right. it's like you know he's always going to bed early what is he doing so she goes down and she catches me writing and uh she said uh you know and, and i explained to her i was you know i had this novel i wanted to write and she just kind of sits down and she says you know this is okay if you want to do this you know but but make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and i said well you know what what are the right reasons and my, my wife is a brilliant lady and she's very smart she's a wonderful wife and mother i'm very fortunate to have her uh, but she said, you know, the right reasons are that you're writing because you enjoy this process. Mm -hmm. If you enjoy this process, then I think you should write all you want. She said, but if you're writing because you want to be published or you want to write a bestseller or you're going to make millions of dollars, she said, then I don't want you to write because none of those things are going to happen. Um, and uh, what was interesting about it was, even though she was wrong um, um, in several regards, I, I, I did end up becoming published, um, you know, <clears throat> and uh, although I haven't written any bestsellers, I, I'm still hoping for that. Um, and I haven't made millions of dollars, but I have made, have, have made a significant amount of money writing. Um, she was right in that the thing that drives me every day when I sit down at the keyboard is that I, I love what I'm doing. Yeah. I love the process. I love to edit, interestingly enough. Um, and she's like, which she finds, my wife finds that like, she said, Peter, you're so methodical and precise with your writing, especially on your editing. She says, it's so different than anything else that you do. Um, uh, uh, so different than the way you go about things other than writing. And, and I think that's because that's what I really love to do. I, I love to make a great sentence. I love creating a great character. Um, I, I love a, a great plot and I get so enthusiastic about it. Um, I'm able to devote the time that's necessary. So let's focus on your writing. So you're writing a book. Do you map it out ahead of time or do you 
kind of does it evolve as you go through the story? Because some writers have different ways to to meet the end, you know. Right. Yeah. So so that's a great question, actually, and it, and it's one it's one you know writers talk about it all the time. We call it like being a plotter versus a pantser. Yeah. And by pantser, I mean you know writing on the seat of your pants. And it's funny because I used to um I used to start with like uh, one idea, um and and uh, my first book I wrote, which is a medical drama called The Intern, that that idea was an interaction that I had with a patient when I was um, uh, a, a resident and I was doing my pediatric rotation. And I met this 12 year old kid who ended up dying about 36 hours after I met him. And, and I had such a wonderful interaction with this young man, you know, over these, these 36 hours. And I, you know, this kind of developed in my mind. I thought about like what, what <clears throat> you know, th this kid actually had wonderful parents, but I thought to myself, you know, what would have happened if I met a kid, you know, who was this age and he had nothing else in his life, you know, what would the interaction between the, 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 the resident physician and the patient be, mm -hmm. you know, would, would the resident physician take on like other roles in addition to doctor, maybe friend, mm -hmm. parent type, that kind of thing. And so I ended up writing this book, um, which is kind of loosely based on this interaction and over many, many different walks, I developed this plot. And then um, I started the actual writing that on Wattpad, um, Wattpad is the world's largest internet sharing site for stories. Um, and it was a wonderful thing for me because I got a lot of positive feedback with Wattpad mm -hmm. on this book. And ultimately, um, one of the, one of the people that read it, um, nominated it for, um, uh, as to be an editor's pick and I became an editor's pick on Wattpad. And That's so when that happened, uh, all of a sudden I got all these reads and, I got hundreds of hundreds of comments and about how much they people love the story. So ultimately I took that story off Wattpad and I, I wrote it up into a novel um, and um, was able to uh, sell that um, uh, to a, um, uh, to a publishing house. And um, that became my first book. And, but what was interesting about it was in the process of, you know, it being edited and stuff like that, how, how much the plot changed, mm -hmm. um, how much, um, you know, how, how many, especially the, especially the, how much the plot changed, but what never changed in the story was the core of the book. And that's this, this beautiful relationship between this 12 year old patient who's dying and this resident physician who's taking care of them. Interestingly enough, I made the resident physician a female. Oh. Um, and I did that for a number of reasons. Number one is um, I kind of liked the, 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 you know, she almost kind of becomes this kid's mother. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought there was a nice kind of maternal maternalish um, nature of their relationship. Yeah. I also, you know, at that point in time, I realized that so many of the people that read books are women yeah. and they want to read about women protagonists. And yeah. so um, I, I made, made the, uh, the lead character, uh, you know, a, a female. And that was, a, it was a great move actually. Um, it's something that I, that I got away from with my next two books, but I've gone back to my most recent books. I, I don't, I'm not sure I'll ever write another book with a male protagonist because number one is, you know, again, you, you, um, as I've gotten into the business of publishing, yeah. um, I realized that you can write a great book, um, which your publisher loves and, um, you know, people review very, very highly, but you've got to write a book. It's got to be fit into a genre where people who read those books, are going to are going to uh, notice it and, and be notified of it and and read it and like it and, and tell other people about that. Being outside of a genre 
um, is a great way to write a good book that doesn't sell very well. And that's one of the, kind of one of the stages I'm at now in my, in my author career is I'm not just interested in writing books and getting them published. Um, I, I'm interested, you know, you, you, it's the whole ice being, you know, sales kind of uh, leaps into your head kind of thing. And, and that's not about money. Um, you know, I have a job. Um, so I'm, I'm a physician, as I mentioned, and, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of money. I don't lead any kind of extravagant lifestyle. So I don't really, you know, money isn't the issue. The issue is I want, you create these stories that you love and you want people to read them. Um, So sales really becomes, for me anyway, um, this is probably not true for a lot of other um, kind of mid-list authors who write for a living. They they need to eat, you know, eat and pay their rent. In my case, I do it because I really want people to meet these characters that I've created. And so sales is just a way of, of reflecting how many people are reading your book. And I think it's so important that you write the book with sales in mind. You know, I, I see them. Um, I do a lot of them um, on a lot of Internet sites and stuff like that with other authors and things like that. And, and you know, both published and, and, and trying to be published. And you see people write things like genre bond, bending. You ever seen this um, term? No, like, this, this book is genre bending or cross genres. And what they're talking about is they're they're writing they're talking about a book that really doesn't have any definitive or identified genre. Okay. And and I think to myself, oh, the, that's poor person. Um, they're gonna they're gonna do all this and they're gonna end up nowhere because right. the whole idea of genre is actually it's an, it's for the author. Um, <laughs> it's like listen, there are people that read these types of books, <laughs> and if you want your book to be read, you have to kind of fit it into that little peg. Yeah. And, and I realize that sounds terrible to some people. And it and I can if you asked me 20 years ago when I started this, I would have said that was terrible as well. But now that I've been doing it for 20 years, I realize the whole idea of genre is actually for the author. Like, listen, it's helping you. There are people that read these types of books and there are people that read these types of books. And if you want your books to be read and your characters to be met, fit it in this peg. Yeah. Um, and so. These are the kind of things I think about now. Um, as I mentioned, you know, it helps when you have a female protagonist. It helps when you write in a in a, a, a book in a genre that's that's out there that's that people buy books in. I want to go back to how you sold your first book to a publisher, because a lot of times authors will self-publish and hope that it gets picked up. How, how did you walk me through that process? Because that seems so fortunate for you like there's a lot of what did, what what was that process like i guess yeah, so I'll, yeah i'll tell you because i'm um I, I actually try to help I, I try to be available to help um uh, other authors with this process because that's one i've you know navigated but keep in mind now i've been doing this for a long time i've been doing this for okay. 20 years okay and that's the thing i tell people i'm like listen don't expect overnight success um and it goes back to what my wife said I didn't need any overnight success because I was loving what I was doing. I, every time I sat down on the keyboard, I loved it. And so I was always winning. Um, so I didn't need a short-term success um, by signing with an agent or a publisher. And I, I ultimately did sign with two different agents. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, uh, I've actually not, I actually don't have an agent at this period of time. I'm considering trying to look for another one, but I've had a bunch of success just doing it myself. Um, so I, um, my agent at the time, um, really liked the intern, but at that point in time, she was focused on selling the book 
more to a um, a big five publisher. So the big five are just the the, the huge conglom- uh, you know publishers like Penguin Viking and HarperCollins right. okay. and those these massive um, uh, publishers with many many different imprints. Uh, and and I get it because you know she makes a living selling books. Um, and I'm going to make a lot more money selling a book to a big five uh, imprint rather than uh, you know some of these smaller publishers. But we we ha- we just hadn't had luck. I, I she she had another manuscript of mine, and she just hadn't had a lot of luck selling it to these major publishers. So I thought Let, let's try a smaller publisher, and she didn't want to do that. So I went on my own. And um, one of the one of the things I had going for me was. I, um, this story had many, many, many viewers on Watt, uh, on Wattpad. So I think that's what was able to, you know, to, uh, I, I, uh, signed ultimately with, um, uh, imprint called Touchpoint and, um, uh, they, um, uh, you know, they're mid-sized publisher. There's probably like 20 people that work for this company. It's, uh, they, they publish quite a few books. So it's, it's not a, like a tiny, uh, one person, you know, uh, business, but it, it's more of a mid-range publisher. But I thought that they did a beautiful job with the book. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that, that got me there was the fact that I, I, I already had a whole following for this book on Wattpad. That's right. Yeah. So and so that's what I tell. And I'd already won. You know, as I said, I already won, I had won the editor's pick for, uh, for a month. And there's, you know, four million people on Wattpad. There's 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 hundreds of thousands of people that write stories. So the fact was, I'd already been I'd already been kind of identified as somebody you know who, who could write previously, and that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things I always tell people: if you're trying to write and you're trying to break through, one of the one of the ways you can do that is um, uh, winning contests, um, you know, getting getting a following on, on a company like Wattpad or there's other internet sharing st- uh, st- uh, sites. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, the same. Um, I saw uh, my other. I have a, a series of books called the Vatican series. Um, the Vatican conspiracy is the first book. Oh, walk me through that. I want to learn. Okay, was this after the intern? Th- this was actually. Um. Uh. Th- this was actually kind of. It's funny because I struggled for so long and didn't get anywhere. And all of a sudden, I got two publishing contracts basically on the same day. Um. And um. Uh. The the intern came out in October of 2020. Um, and the Vatican's uh, conspiracy came out in, um, excuse me, the intern came out in uh, April of 2020, and the Vatican conspiracy came out in October of 2020, but those contracts were almost signed simultaneously, like a year and a half prior to that. It it just took a lot longer, maybe not a year and a half, like a year prior to that. It just took a lot longer to get through the the system with with, um, the Vatican uh, conspiracy, because that was with a much larger publisher publisher by the name of Bookature, which is an absolutely wonderful publisher. I have nothing but great things to say about them. Um, Bookature started out as a um, uh, this guy by the name of Oliver Rhodes, who was a, um, in a work in publishing his whole life. He's an English guy. He decides to start this, this company called Bookature. It's going to be a digital only publisher. Wow. Um, and he decides to do it by um, he's going to attract talent by offering like a much better percentage of the of the final take to the author, and he's able to lure a lot of these um, a lot of um, uh, authors from other imprints from big five prints over because of this generous because of this generous um, payment. And by the time I got a hold of them, uh, imprint uh, Bookature had been bought by Hashit, which is the second largest publisher in the world. And they had become quite the, the, the large conglomerate kind of publisher. That said, I felt like I had a wonderful experience with them. 
Um, the, the editing was fantastic. The, the publicity was great. The, the, the cover art was great. Um, but the reason I was able to sign with Bookature is because I won a contest. Um, and I had um, uh, sent my manuscript into the Killer Nashville um, Writing Conference. Killer, Killer Nashville is one of the, it's probably the largest um, writing uh, contest and writing conference for thriller writers. And they have a number of awards. Most of them are for published authors who, who can submit their book, but, but they also have one for unpublished authors. And I submitted mine at that point in time, I was an unpublished author and I submitted it and I became a top finalist for that, um, that award. And as a consequence, and Derek's, and the, the guy who runs the conference had, had um, uh, emailed me, he says, you know, my, in our experience, people that are a top finalist for this award will all, will all ultimately um, uh, get agents and publishers. And that's what happened to me. Using that as kind of a stepping stone, you know, um, I was able to get, get in with Bookature, which is a wonderful company, and um, so that's why when I tell people when, when you're when you're trying to break through um, to things like contests and internet sharing uh, 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 sites, those things can be your allies, because what what agents and publishers are looking for, they're looking for somebody to <clears throat> kind of weed out. Um, weed out the people that want to write, but, you know, just are never going to be published writers. Um, and then, and, and, and kind of weed that down to a bunch of people who, who, who really, you know, who can write. Yeah. It's like, um, <clears throat> it's almost like a, it's, it's just, it's a college when you apply to college and they, they want your grades or SATs or something like that. And they're, they're, they're looking for a certain kind of, uh, they're looking for people to filter down the numbers because when it boils down to it, four, there are 4 million books written every year. Um, and you know, the, the large majority of those are self-published. And so people and you know, writers like myself, I thought, I thought about doing the self-publishing thing, but I, I wasn't sure how I was ever going to get myself noticed, um, in, in the self-publishing world. There's so many books that are published. I mean, how, how do you get your book out there to readers kind of thing? And mm -hmm. I, I think we're, we're, um, the way I look at it is the, the, uh, now that I've gotten my myself, you know, so, uh, you know, a little bit of following, nothing huge. You know, I, I haven't had great success, um, uh, but I've enjoyed every day. That's right. Um, but um, now, now I've got some success. I'm actually thinking about taking some of my older manuscripts and revising them and maybe self-publishing them now. Um, because, you know, once you do have a following, I think they're looking for, um, they're looking for more material from you. Yeah. And keep in mind now that, you know, with, with all these other things I'm supposed to be doing, like, you know, uh, practicing medicine and playing <laughs> golf. Um, it takes away right. from my time at the yeah. keyboard. And it, so it takes me a little bit longer to write a book than than some other people who are just doing this full time. So the Vatican series, <clears throat> did you get the idea when you were hiking? Like, because I love hiking too. And you get all this, I mean, being outdoors, it just, it's so, it's beautiful. Did you get it? hiking like where did the idea come from and how did you map out a series i mean did you know it was going to be a series i always wonder about that yeah so it, it, i actually did get the idea hiking and i got the idea hiking in monteroso el mare which is in italy um yeah. i was i was on a vacation um, i used to live in austria and um we went down to um, this place called the Cinque Terre, which is in, in Italy. It's right. Um, it's this wonderful place. The Cinque Terre. It means it means the five lands in, in uh, Italian. And there's these five little towns that are stuck on this rough piece of coastline um, above the Ligurian Sea. And what's interesting about this place is 
the mountains erupt right out of the sea. I mean, and we're talking mountains. These aren't hills. These are these huge mountains that erupt right out of the, the out of the Ligurian Sea. And these little villages are stuck in these crevices in the mountains. And they're connected by this path um, that's uh, it's a famous hiking path in Italy uh, called the, um, the Sentiero Azzurro, which is the, the, the blue path. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the blue path because you're, you're literally right above the ocean the whole time. But in, in the old times, that's how the people of the five villages, that's how they got around. And that's how they, they went to visit each other. You could only walk or take a boat because there is no amount of, you know, land, uh, there's no road. There, there's subsequently some small roads in there. Um, about a hundred years ago, they built a train um, that, that services it. And to build the train, they had to literally tunnel through the, the mountain the whole th the whole way through. So when you're going to um, one of these towns of the Cinque Terre, you're riding through this tunnel and all of a sudden the train will stop in the middle of this mountain and they'll let you off. And you walk through another tunnel out to this train station, which is perched on a little piece of rock above the sea. It's a fascinating place. So we go there. Um, this is back in the 80s. And uh, we went there based on a tip of someone we had met who was traveling Europe. And we happened to run into him in a bar in Salzburg. And he was telling us about this wonderful place. And this is you know, way before the internet and cell phones and stuff. He goes, you got to go down there and check it out. So we had a week of vacation and off we went down to this place. And we get there and I'm hiking along this, this path that goes for you know like 15 uh, miles or so above the ocean. And I thought to myself, this place right here, th this Cinque Terre, has got to be the setting of a book. Um, and I said, I've, I've got to come up with a book that's that's going to be set seated right here because this is such a dramatic landscape. And I and I love the whole idea of of the setting as a character in the book. Um, and so it took me a long time to figure out what that plot would be. Mm -hmm. But I ultimately did uh, ultimately came up with a plot for it. And, um, uh, and, and as I was doing that, my wife and I went back to um, Europe for a, for a trip and I went back. To, to Monterosso, and I, I wanted to work out the details of this opening scene of the book. Mm -hmm. And I went back to this this church that I had been in, you know, many many years ago, and uh, it was just you know I, I had chills up my spine being back to that place and thinking about this book that I was writing, um, set right in this little this little old church, you know, right on the uh, the foothills or right on the shore, perched on this massive pile of rock right above the bay in Monterosso. Um, and so as far as the plot's concerned, um, I had been to a number of writing conferences um, back in those days. And for the thriller, for, for the thriller genre, every one of these writing conferences kept on saying, listen, this is a very crowded marketplace. Um, there's tons of thrillers out there. There's a lot of established thriller writers. There's all kinds of people trying to break into this market. So to do that, you have to do the same thing that they're doing but you have to do it differently. And, and what that means is, it, it seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Yeah. You have to do the same thing, but you have to do it different. Um, ultimately, what I think they meant was, you have to use the same tried and true thriller format. Okay. But you have to bring some kind of twist to it that makes your, your um, kind of entree into the um, uh, thriller market something that's unique and different. And okay. so what I decided to do was, I decided to, to, to take the, the, the classic thriller protagonist, 
um, which is, you know, like a begruntled cop or, you know, the FBI agent with a drinking problem or a Navy SEAL with post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, there's, I've read so many of these and there's always the same. It's always some type of law enforcement official who's gone bad um, somehow, or, you know, he, he's, um, you know, he's divorced from his wife and, his, and all of a sudden there's an appeal from his ex-wife and, you know, to save her. It's always the same kind of character. So I said, I'm going to come up with a, a main character who's a Jesuit priest. Um, but to put this Jesuit priest, and, and, and I was educated by Jesuits my whole life, so I know them very well. And they're very thoughtful, peaceful people. Mm-hmm. And so to take this thoughtful, you know, very articulate, gentle, you know, peace-loving guy and, and put thrust him into a situation where all of a sudden, uh, you know, thrust him, as, as I said in my blurb many times, into a, cesp- into a cesspool of violence and moral turpitude. And the, the reason I liked the idea was that um, we always want to create conflict in our writing. Right. And what better conflict there is, is there to take a guy uh, who doesn't believe in violence as a means of um, conflict resolution yeah. and put him in a situation where he has to be violent in order to resolve the conflict. Right. Um, and I, I just love that idea. And as I was um, as I was writing this book over, over many years before it got published, uh, it, it, it went through many different, you know, kind of twists and turns. Um, I was agented twice um, with this book. Um, it was interesting because neither agent was actually able, able to sell it. Um, it wasn't until I, I, I uh, had sent that book, as I mentioned, and it, and it uh, was a finalist in a contest that I was able to get that book noticed. Um, but the, the agents, they attracted a lot. I mean, I, I was able to get six or seven different, and in fact, seven different agents um, wanted to sign that book. The book attracted a lot of interest among publishers, um, but as I say, nobody I was never able to seal the deal. I was never able to sign a contract with one of those big five publishers because, and I just tell people, it's just because it's so hard to do. There's so much competition out there. But in all this process, the, the thing that most the most people liked about the book was just this this very idea of this, this juxtaposition that, that, that Marco Vanetti, who is the main character, this terrible moral dilemma that he has now, uh, he's trying to do something good, that is save his ex-girlfriend and also save the Pope, but he has to use violence to do that. And that's something he just does not want to do. Um, and that was the thing that attracted people to that. That's what people noticed all along. And that was my original idea. Um, and, it, and it turned out to be you know, an idea that, 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 that uh, you know, attracted a lot of attention. So how did you decide that it needed subsequent books to tell the story? Well, that's a, that, that's a great question. Um, and the answer was very simple. Um, when I signed with Book Insure, um, they don't sign anything but two book deals, um, anything oh. less than two book deals. They, they'll oftentimes sign three book deals or even four book deals. But with, with new authors, they sign two book deals because their philosophy is the, the best way to build a following is for is for to write books for people to read. Yeah. So they're not interested in in you writing a book and then writing a book another ten years. So right. when I first signed with them, it, it turned out to be during the um, you know COVID came along, and I hated COVID for a billion reasons. But the only thing that ever good in, in my life that came out of COVID was the fact that um, we were in lockdown. Yeah. Um, uh, during this, and I had very little else to do but write because. I had six months to write that second book. Yeah. And with all the other things that I have in my life, there's no other way 
that I would be able to do that if we hadn't been in lockdown. Wow. What does and, the second book take from the first book then? And then the second book to the third? Does the main character continue? Is he killed? I know I don't give it all away because people will buy it. But like how did how did it like evolve as a story, so to speak? It's a really interesting question, Wendy. It's um so in my case, um, I left quite a bit hanging from book one to book two. So in addition to the fact that, you know, with most series, the 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 main characters continue on. One of my favorite authors is Daniel Silva, and he writes this series um, about Gabriel Alon, who's a um, uh, an art re restorer and, and assassin. Uh, and I love the fact that he restores life, but but kills people. He restores art, but kills people. But, um, uh, and that, that's been a tremendously successful series. Uh, you know, it's, it's many, many New York Times number one bestsellers. But he's now, what is it, like the 23rd book. And it's always the same cast of characters kind of thing. Every once in a while, a character gets killed off, but not very often. So when you pick up a Gabriel Alon book, um, you will get the same cast of characters. I think that's what people are looking for. The same is true with my books. Um, the Vatican uh, Conspiracy is the same cast of characters as in book one. Um, and in, in my case, uh, there were a couple of threads um, left um, untied. Um, and so we tie up those threads in that book. In addition, we add, we add some other new threads um, and, and some people, you know, based on the comments, uh, you know, you, you, I'd like to go on Amazon and click on the comments that people write about my books. And some people um, like the fact that the, the the book wasn't completely tied up in book one. And, and I think that was, you know, Bookature certainly likes that idea because I think that's going to bring people, move, move them right on to book two right away. Mm -hmm. uh, but I got criticized for it as well. Some people say, hey, you know, listen, I bought this book and I really wanted to find out who did this. And... Although I found out some of the information, I didn't find out all of it. And they felt kind of almost tricked kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just wondering because you you wear many different hats. Practicing physician and author. I um, You also like host a TV show? Yes, I do. So before uh, you get too excited about that, it's, it's on cable access TV um, okay. in Vermont. Um, so uh, we have we have a Peg TV studio in town, and they they um, they do a lot of. Um, uh, it's interesting enough; they have three channels, uh, but uh, it's on local cable throughout the state of Vermont. And they had uh, I had appeared as a guest on there a number of times over my career, and they came to me um, a number of years ago and said, "Hey, listen, you know we we think you're pretty good at this. Why don't you come up with a health show?" Um, they had had a, pre a health show on a number of years ago, and that, that physician retired and stopped doing it. They're like, why, why don't you have a health show? So I came up with this idea of Your Health Matters with Dr. Peter Hogenkamp. And I, I thought it was so clever because, like, you know, it has this double entendre, like, um, you know, Your Health Matters, um, you know, meaning, you know, the matters, but Your Health Matters, specifically you, Your Health Matters. And... Anyway, I, I was thinking it's so clever. I Googled it and there's like 50 different programs named Your Health Matters. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, I guess I wasn't the only one with that idea. Oh my gosh. So but, what do you I, do on your TV show? So, so that's what we talk about. We talk about health matters. And um, I um, I usually have a guest, although sometimes I go solo. I did, I did a lot of solo stuff during COVID. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, 
uh, as a family doctor, you know, I practice primary care medicine. Uh, you know, I, I know what people are interested in because these are the questions they ask me. So when people, you know, somebody comes up with a very interesting question or wants to know about something, I write it down. I carry a little notebook with me at all times and I write it down and then I'll, you know, research it and, and, and create a half an hour TV show about it. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I'll ask uh, a specialist physician to come in and, and discuss it with me. And I love those shows because I always learn things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's just a, a lot of fun for me. And, and uh, you know, I, I talk to people all the time, try to get them on the show. And some people don't want to do it, you know, um, that I don't want to be on TV. And I'm like, listen, I said, you won't even notice the cameras. Uh, you know, we, there's a studio there. We go down. I, I have a producer. I'm very fortunate. I've got my own producer, my own cameraman. I it's, it's all done for me. All I have to do is, you know, write the content of the show and host it. Yeah. Um, but um, I say, listen, it's just me talking to you like we do all the time. It's yeah. me and you. So you sit there. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to interrupt you all the time. We're going to make jokes. It's just me and you. And and, and I've had a number of guests want to come back because they enjoyed it. So uh, yeah. it's kind of fun. How long have you been doing that? A, a, a while now. I don't know, uh, six or seven years. And um, it's, I, it's just, I, I, uh, I do one program a month um, and it gets air. I mean, you know, it's, it's a cable access TV show. So that, it airs three times a week. <laughs> But, um, and I, I, I get comments all the time in the groceries. Hey, I saw your show. I love this. My most recent show, what we did about sleep medicine and, um, Only everything. yeah. So, so sleep is such an interesting thing because I get tons of questions about sleep. And, um, so I had the sleep doctor on who is this wonderful, uh, lady by the name of Dr. Veronica Jalofsky. And she was, she was fantastic. And I got a lot of great comments about that. People want her back on from, for, for more shows. Um, but I, it's a learning experience for me. I will tell you a, th the, a couple things about sleep, and that is that um, like 40% of people in this modern world have some type of sleep dysfunction, whether it be periodic sleep dysfunction or chronic sleep dysfunction. And so sleep dysfunction is really common problem. I think almost everybody at some point in time in their life has a period of time where they're not sleeping well. Um, and... Um, the other thing I was um, uh, so impressed to learn is how important sleep is for all aspects of your life, um, especially like your, your, your cognitive you know, processes, um, mm -hmm. your you know, forming memories and you know, ex executive functions and stuff like that. When, when people aren't sleeping well, they are truly less than uh, effective in many aspects of their life. It affects your immune function. It, um, I always talk about how it affects your happiness. Um, mood is intricately related, uh, related with sleep. So anyway, I, um, um, uh, my most popular show ever is I have one of my buddies on, and um, he's a, a guru about intermittent fasting. Um, and he, uh, yeah, oh yeah. We, so intermittent fasting is interesting because one of the things I like to talk about is, you know how people um, say things like, oh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Yes. How many times have you heard that? My whole life. It's complete bunk. Um, people say, you know, three, you know, get, get three eating three meals a day is so important. It's total garbage. Uh, it, it has no basis in any kind of scientific um, uh, fact. Uh, the, the, uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, think about where we have come from as a species. You know, our species has been on this planet for 300,000 years. Do you think we were always eating breakfast? Uh, do you think we were always eating three square meals, you know, at regular intervals? The, no. No. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is, um, 
our, our predecessors as hunter-gatherers were far healthier than we are today. All these modern diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, yeah. these things are all um, functions of the modern age, which were not uh, around for them. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with our diet. Um, I mean, hunter-gatherers, they would go days without eating. And they did perfectly fine. When they ate, they ate large meals and then they didn't eat again for two or three days. Yeah. Uh, so this idea of intermittent fasting has a real root in the paleontological you know, uh, basis of medicine. Yeah. Um, I talk, I use the word paleontological all the time. Uh, and that's because, you know, when you think about it, if, um, if intermittent fasting didn't work, we wouldn't be here as species. Right. We could have right. died out. Um, so clearly, um, you know, uh, it's not going to hurt you to miss breakfast. And in fact, um, missing breakfast or missing a lot of meals um, does so many good things for you, uh, especially improve your sugar metabolism. Uh, metabolism. So I tell people in this day and age now where, where sugar problems and diabetes have become such a, um, uh, a huge part of our, you know, it's, the, yeah. it's estimated that within by 2030, 50% um, of Americans will have um, some type of um, uh, sugar problem, whether it be impaired glucose tolerance or um, frank diabetes, 50% by 2030. Um, and that's right around the corner, everybody. Okay. Yeah. It's closer than you think. It'll yeah. be here tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, but, but intermittent, uh, intermittent fasting really helps your, um, your ability to metabolize glucose. There's so many good things about intermittent fasting. And if you're interested in it, um, you should watch the show, Your Health Matters with Dr. Peter Hogenkamp. Go on the, um, uh, you can go on my website, which yeah. is peterhogenkampbooks.com. There's a link to my, um, uh, to my YouTube Perfect. channel. You can go on YouTube. Um, I have a YouTube channel, um, Your Health Matters with Dr. Peter Hogenkamp. The intermittent fasting one with Dr. Kanash is fantastic. Um, and it, we're going to do, uh, in fact, that's going to be my next show. It's going to be kind of a more in-depth intermittent fasting trying to nail Dr. Kanash's schedule down. But it's so important because, you know, people find, uh, they find changing what they eat very difficult. So, you know, you, you get in the mode with changing what you eat. And and, and this is the, the, the whole idea of intermittent fasting now is that you can eat the same things that you've always eaten, mm -hmm. but just uh, change the time at which you're eating them. Uh, and the frequency with which you're eating them, and you can actually get to a, a much better health state by doing that. Uh, it's amazing. It turns out that um, if you are a um, carb, if you have a carb-rich diet, then intermittent fasting doesn't work very well because, as I think most people know, when you eat a lot of carbs, uh, so that your sugar level goes up. Well, following that on, a, on, a, on another curve is your insulin levels, and as your insulin levels go up to metabolize the the uh, the, the glucose. Yes. Your sugar levels drop. And when those sugar levels drop, that makes you hungry. And that's one of the mm -hmm. biggest problems about eating carbohydrate is that you're constantly stimulating glucose, which drops your sugar level and makes you hungry. And so you're in this nonstop cycle of sugar levels like this. It affects your mood. Oh, it affects okay. your fatigue levels. Um, it actually affects your serotonin levels. And that's that, it's something I was fascinated by when I, when I looked it up, when I found that out. And obviously serotonin levels, you know, play an important partner in our mood. So if you do that, it's very, very hard to do intermittent fasting when you have a glucose or a carbohydrate rich diet, because you're just going to get too hungry. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're eating a lot of, um, of foods that are high in protein and, and even fat, 
those are satiating foods. Right. And so you're, you're not going to be hungry. I mean, I think that's one of the, the real secrets of intermittent fasting is it almost forces you to eat a more protein rich diet. Yeah. Um, and, and the combination, therefore, of, of high protein diet and intermittent fasting is really where you see a, lot, a tremendous number of health benefits. But I, when I look at intermittent fasting, you see like numbers, like 16, 8, or there's like a breakdown of different times mm -hmm. and how you fit into that. What, how do you know you should fast for 16 hours? Like, what is that? Is that a doctor telling me to fast like that? Like, that's I don't know. What breakdown. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Wendy, because I would say that, um, you will hear from uh, about one or two percent of physicians about intermittent fasting, okay? Because you know a lot of physicians they, they we we take what we learn in medical school and residency and we keep on going with that, and this is relatively new stuff. And and I and one of the things I I find about physicians is they they tend to stick with the advice that they were given during their training. You know, I just like to I like to you know I do the show and I do a lot of research for the show. And it's one of the things that makes me, a, a, you know, a good doctor is I'm, I'm constantly researching these things. Yeah. So you will not find this. And I guarantee you, uh, it's very, very unlikely, unless you come to Rutland, Vermont to see me as a doctor or see Dr. Kanash, you're going to have somebody tell you about intermittent fasting. Um, there's a lot of information about it on Facebook, on the internet in general. But what I tell people when they want to start it is, listen, start off with 16-8. It's, nice, it's a nice way to do it. And, and the best way to do that is, Skip breakfast, um, eat a uh, eat a late lunch or an early dinner, and then you're done for the day. Um, it's just uh, I, and I I like to get onto the more uh, uh, you know even uh, four twenty. Um, you want to talk about benefits, you know uh, four twenty or or you know the the longer you don't eat and the less you eat, the better off it's going to be. Okay. Um, in our next show on uh, on intermittent fasting, Dr. Kanash is going to talk about some other ways to intermittent fast. And that is like for, for every month to go uh, have a three-day fast um, where you're basically having nothing. He, he um, has bone broth during that period of time, mm -hmm. but just bone broth over three days. And he'll tell you that he never feels better than during that three-day fast where he feels very sharp. Uh, it's very good for your mental acumen, your mental clarity. Um, it and has all Sleep. You get good sleep with this. You do. Okay. All right. Wow. So there's a lot. There's a lot with intermittent fasting. It's not. It doesn't have to be just the sixteen eight. Although that's the. I think the easiest way to break into it. Yeah. Uh, sixteen eight is really easy. I mean, you have a late breakfast at ten o'clock. You eat early dinner at, at six, and you're done. Right. And, right. and 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 you know, think about it this way. You know, when you look at, you know, weight maintenance, it's all a question about calories consumed and calories burned, right? Right. So let's say on average, we burn about 2000 calories a day. That's a fair estimate. I think most people will see that. And when they look in the literature, if you eat more than that, let's say you eat 2600 a day, you're gaining 600 calories a day in a week. That's a pound. Of, that's a pound of calories. Yeah. If on the other hand, you eat, let's say, you know, uh, 600 less, you only eat 1400 calories a day in a week, you've lost a pound because of calorie deficit. So one way of approaching weight maintenance is to reduce your calories. And it's by far the best way to do it, to be honest with you, because when people increase the number of calories they burn by exercising, do you know what happens to your brainstem? No. Your brainstem screams at you to eat. 
when you exercise, your brain stem is you're burning calories. You've got to eat to maintain your weight because your brain stem was developed 300,000 years ago when people starved to death on a regular basis. Your brain stem does not want you. And you can't affect your brainstem's function. It's not part of your, your, the higher brain function. There's no thought to it. The brainstem is where it tells your heart to beat. It tells your lungs to breathe. To, uh, it tells your um, the the muscles that don't uh, require uh, cerebral input. You know your involuntary muscles. It tells them to move. It wants you to gain weight because at that period of time in our human history, people died of starvation. So it's always trying to get you to conserve calories. <laughs> Therefore, when you exercise you are stimulating your appetite center. And it's very difficult to exercise, especially significant exercise, and not eat more calories. So what happens when people exercise is they burn more calories, but they eat more. And what ends up happening is there's a zero-sum game here, and therefore exercise is a fantastic way to maintain your body weight. Um, and when people are exercising, especially vigorous, it's almost impossible for them to gain weight. Right. It's also possible for them to lose weight because what happens is, you know, as they eat more calories, they're going to end up balancing out here. Yeah. So um, I, I tell people, if you're actually trying to lose weight, it, again, I'm not saying don't exercise, but keep in mind now that you're going to stimulate your appetite and it's going to be very, very difficult for you to restrict calories. Yeah. I think the easiest way to lose exercise is for light to moderate exercise on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and then just, you know, restricting calories. That's amazing. Okay. You have to tell me how you balance it all. You have you a beautiful wife. She's the rock star in your world. You have four kids. You're a practicing physician, author. You have a YouTube channel. You hike. Golf is a big thing. Um, you don't forget about skiing. Like, how do you do it all? I'm like, it's amazing. Uh, well, you, you already gave me the answer, and that's my beautiful and wonderful wife. Um, my beautiful and wonderful wife is the uh, is the source of all balance in my life uh, because she's a very um, – uh, uh, by the way, I'll, I'll put a plug in for her. She's an absolutely wonderful physician, Central Vermont Physician of the Year six years in a row, and she is very deserving of it. Um, but she, you know, she's sitting there, she's like my governor, you know, like the governor on an engine, you know, that's adjusting, you know, how, how much gas goes into the engine kind of thing. And Lisa, very, very um, uh, quick to point out, hey, you've been, you've been writing too much recently, or you're playing golf too much, or she never tells me I'm practicing medicine too much. <laughs> that's so great. She is my, she really helps me with balance. Um, I will say that I have somewhat of a of a um, kind of an innate sense of balance because I I like to do so many different things. Um, I I think that I, I never get too focused on one. Um, but writing would be the biggest thing. I mean, um, as of the end of this year, I'm going to go down to part time, uh, and so I'll have more time to write. Um, and part of that is because uh, I was talking about bookature before. Bookature is really moving to this model of um, <clears throat> authors writing <clears throat> at least two, as many as four books a year. And if I want to stay with Bookature, which I do, um, I'm going to need to actually, you know, get, write at least two books a year. Um, yeah. And to do that, I'm going to need more time at the keyboard. Um, so that that's one of the things about that. And again, you know, I, uh, three of my four kids are, are graduated from college. Um, we had, we had, um, uh, three children right in a row. And then we had an uh, eight year gap. And we had another one. 
Um, so she's almost like a, you know, uh, she's quite a bit younger than her brothers and sisters, and she's almost like an only child in some some aspects. But uh, and she was just a, a real joy and wonder for us, and you know, in our lives uh, at that point in time, she was such a good baby because her older brothers and sisters were teenagers. Being, we, you know, she's you know, she's like five years old, and her older brothers and sisters are going here and there, and we just dragged her everywhere. Yeah. You know, she, this woman has been everywhere. And um, as a consequence of that, she was always very um, uh, adaptable and easygoing. You know, she's, you know, and uh, it was really nice, too, when, when she got to that age herself and she had her older brothers and sisters coming to watch her various sporting events and, you know, what That's have you. Awesome. But um, I, I do, um, <clears throat> and I do love spending time with my children. That's another one of the um, uh, things I love to do. We love to travel and see them, um, especially as your kids get older and kind of establish their own lives and their own kind of um you know, uniqueness. And it's, it's interesting to be a part of that as well. Yeah. But anyway, thankfully for my wife, I managed to, uh, I managed to kind of stay balanced. That's great. I did want to, before we wrap up, I work at Xavier University in Cincinnati. Who, which the Musketeers. Is, yes. And it's a Jesuit campus. So when you had said that, I'm like, I've got to tell them. And I agree with you a thousand percent. I had never worked for a Jesuit um, school before. And I feel so at home there. It's just accepting, loving. I, I mean, I the whole person is taken care of there. And it's absolutely amazing. So this means that I have to go buy the series and get hooked on it to see how the Jesuit uh, hero works through the books. So that's going to be great. Um, anyway, but thank you. I want to thank you for spending time with me. I'm going to go to your YouTube channel. People can subscribe, right? Is that they can. Mm -hmm. subscribe? Um, but wow, I've never met such a busy, happy, uh, loving person as yourself. And I'm really grateful you took the time to to come to the coffee celebration with me. So, by the way, I, I did want to mention that um, <clears throat> uh, I'm a huge fan of Pete's coffee, and it's not it's not just because my name is Peter. Uh, but uh, somebody once gave me, uh, went to Seattle and they bought me back some Pete's coffee. And uh, I've been hooked on um, Major Dickinson's brand ever since. The best. Oh, I'm writing that down. Thank you so you much. Pete, have you heard of Pete's coffee? Yes. Uh-huh. I have. Major Dickinson's blend. It's a phenomenal cup of coffee. Um, and I would highly recommend it. Thank you. As coffee lovers need to stick together. So. We sure do. Oh my gosh, continued success for you. I'm really excited to look up everything that you've done and I'm going to definitely watch the one about intermittent fasting. Please. The sleep, the sleep show is good too. Okay. Wendy, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate this. I've learned so much. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, cheers. Bye-bye.